A reading from the book of 1 Corinthians. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, If you're listening, you know that uh, this message is probably not going to be one of those feel-good, touchy kind of messages. Some passages you really look forward to uh, preaching on, and some others you go, okay, well, let's see. So let's pray. That would be a good thing to do this morning. Father, we... uh, have gathered this morning as your people in this place to be your community of saints and to worship you. And we hit a passage this morning that really kind of confronts us as what it means to be church and how we do church and what it means to be community and what that really looks like. And it's a passage that uh, sometimes seems harsh and troubling and things in it we don't understand but we treat it as your word. So, Father, I pray this morning that you'd speak through it to our hearts, to our community as a church, that uh, as we listen this morning, we'd be challenged to holiness and challenged to live in ways that are pleasing to you and make an impact on our community and further your kingdom. And I think this passage takes us there. So uh, help us understand, help us listen, help us wrestle. Help us change where we need to change. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, David Brooks, who's been a conservative commentator for a number of years, has just written a new book uh, called The Road to Character. Good book. He was actually interviewed on NPR the other day, and during that interview, he made a comment that I really like. 
He, he says, I like the word sin. And I think it's necessary to bring it back. It reminds us that life is a moral occasion. I like that phrase. I think he's right. Life is a moral occasion. And if it is a moral occasion, then we need religious words like sin and grace and holiness because those words help us as we struggle in the pursuit of character. They're not words we can do away with, even if our culture does not like them. Brooks has some other comments in the book that I think are really good to pay attention to. A couple quotes. Today, the word sin has lost its power and awesome intensity. It's used most frequently in the context of fattening desserts. Most people in mainstream conversation don't talk much about individual sin. If they they talk about human evil at all, then that evil is often located in the structures of society, in inequality, oppression, racism, and so on, not in the human breast. Important note, we've externalized sin. It's not something uh, we're responsible for because we ourselves internally are broken and do. It's always external to us in a sense. When modern culture tries to replace sin with ideas like airs or insensitivity, or tries to banish words like virtue and character and evil or vice altogether, that doesn't make life any less moral. It just means we think and talk about those choices less clearly and become increasingly blind to the moral stakes of everyday life. I think Brooks is right. I think we need to talk more about the issue of sin. Because understanding sin and what it is and how we participate in it and what it is in us is critical for us facing life well and walking through life well and dealing with evil. You can't do that unless you understand sin. One of my favorite authors, she's becoming one of my favorite authors, she writes essays uh, for The Journey with Jesus. Debbie Thomas wrote this essay. It's called The Big Bad S Word, just a part of it. She says, what is sin? Growing up, I was taught that sin is breaking God's laws or missing the mark as an archer misses his target or committing immoral acts. These definitions aren't wrong, but I no longer find them big enough. They assume that sin is a problem primarily because it angers God. But God's temper is not what's at stake. He's more than capable of managing his own emotions. Sin is a problem. Because it kills. And it kills me. Those are haunting words. But she's hitting at the heart of the issue. Sin is incredibly destructive in our lives. We have been working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we entitled this series, A Broken Kind of Beautiful. It's playing on this notion that on one hand, the church is this beautiful thing. It is Christ's bride, and he loves it incredibly. Uh, But on the other hand, the church is also broken. And that's true about this church in Corinth. Paul is writing this letter to the church there. And although it's got lots of great things going for it, it in so many ways is very, very messed up. And he's addressing those issues. And one of the things I'm finding as we work our way through the book is that the issues he's talking about, even though they're true for a church 2,000 years ago, are very true for us even today. It's pretty relevant stuff. 
Uh, chapters 1 through 4 deal with really the issue of disunity. There's dissensions in the church. People in the church have been attaching themselves to particular leaders, whether it's the Apostle Paul or Apollos, Peter, or Jesus. The spiritual people are saying they follow him. And as a result, uh, they're burging, they're basking in reflected glory. Um, and their pride's getting in the way, and it's causing fights. It's causing dissensions in the church. And the church is supposed to be this place that's unified. So Paul really goes after this issue, and he does it by helping them think more clearly about their leaders. Ultimately, in chapter 4, we talked about it last week, that leaders are simply servants of Christ. They're tools in God's hands to use for his purposes, not somebody we attach ourselves to so our ego gets stroked. So he's been dealing with dissensions. From there, he moves into a second section, and a lot of this section deals with sexuality, and we'll get to that as we work our way through. But the first part of this this section, chapter 5, deals with the sexual sin, but it's really not about sexuality as much as the issue of how do we deal with people who are entangled in sin, both in the church and in the world. Uh, do we just keep our mouths shut? I mean, what right do we have to intervene? What right do we have to say anything in terms of how somebody else is living? Um, maybe we just ignore it. Maybe we're silent. What do we do when we see people entangled with sin? Now, what Paul is going to do in this passage is he's going to talk, first of all, about people who are entangled in sin, but who are part of the church. And he's going to argue that we're to deal with them a particular way. But then he alludes to the fact that there are people in the culture who are entangled with sin, and he talks about how we're to deal with them as well. Now, originally, I was going to talk about wealth in one message and figured it was probably not fair to have you sit here for two hours. So we split it in half. So today, I want to talk about people entangled in sin, how we respond to them, those in the church. And then next week, I want to talk about how we deal with sin in our culture. And by the way, I think both of these are incredibly relevant topics given what's going on in our culture. Uh, Next week, we'll we'll try to address how do we respond to the whole issue of gay marriage and the gender deal and all these things happening in our culture. What do we do? Um, But this morning, (laughs) I want us, first of all, to talk about us. How does the, the community of the church respond to people entangled in sin. So we're going to work our way through the passage. I'm going to try to explain what I can. And as we do that, I want to pull out four lessons or four principles that we learn about the church and how it deals with this issue of sin. And and you might call it church discipline. Let's begin chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. The word there for sexual immorality means sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. But he gets more specific about this situation. And of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, we, we, We think that's gross and we should... But it's probably not what you conceptualize. This is not his mother. This is his stepmother. All right? 
And in that day, uh, older gentlemen would sometimes marry very young women when their wife died. So this stepmother, my guess, is either a similar age of this son or younger. Which explains maybe why he's in an affair with her. Uh, Maybe it's just because they're attracted to each other. Uh, That would not be uncommon. Or perhaps his father has died and he's become the inheritor of the state. If the son is wealthy and a patron, then this woman has initiated the affair because he is her financial security. Because her husband now is gone. He owns all the money. So this is the way she wants to make a living in a sense by being connected with him. What we know is that he's a believer because Paul's going to talk about how to deal with him. But Paul doesn't talk about how to deal with her, which would indicate that she's not. So he's involved in this insensuous relationship. And it's a serious thing. Uh, The Jewish law of that time uh, saw it as just a huge offense to be involved with your mother or stepmother. It's incest. And not only did the religious community see it as evil, but so did the secular pagan community. When he says pagan, he's talking about the Greeks and the Romans. (laughs) They saw this as a horrendous evil as well. What are you doing? You can't sleep with your stepmother. Um, That's wrong. But notice how the church is responding. And you are proud. Makes you kind of scratch your heads. How how can they be proud about that? And I think what it is, is grace gone to see. This is cheap grace. This is saying, hey, isn't grace a wonderful thing? Jesus paid for all my sins so I can just live any way I want because I know no matter what I do, it will be forgiven. Now, there's some truth to that. It's true theologically. It's just bad application. All right. The fact that all of our sins are forgiven, not should not make us live licentiously or, or live more sinfully. Now, because our sins are forgiven, our identities change, so now we should live more holy, not more sinful, and they turn that around. But they're proud of it. Grace is great. Not only is the man proud of it, but the church community is proud of it. Oh, we, can, we can tolerate this because grace and forgiveness. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? Now, the word here for mourning is a word that's used to describe grief at someone who has died who is very close to you. So it's this this word laden with all kinds of emotion. And Paul is saying, rather than being proud, you should be stricken and mournful. And it's an interesting word. It's actually used in Second Corinthians uh, where, where it's talked in the sense of constructive sorrow, a sorrow or a grief that leads you to confession and repentance. Now, you see, Paul understands something that the Corinthians have missed, and that is that sin is incredibly repugnant to a holy God. And I think sometimes we miss that. We talk a lot about God's love and a lot about God's grace. What we don't talk much about in our culture is God's holiness and his wrath. But those are just as profound realities about the nature of God as his love and grace. And if God is a holy God, then we need to understand that, yes, he is gracious and loving, but he hates sin. It's antithetical to his very nature and his very character. 
That's we, we should push it away as well. And when we get entrapped in it, mourning is a great response. Not only have they missed the holiness of God, but I think they have also missed the destructiveness of sin. Debbie Thomas is right. It kills. And it not only kills us, but it kills those closest to us. So we should never celebrate God's grace in the sense that it allows sin. Rather, we should always push away sin as far as we can from our lives. Paul says, mourn over it. And then he says, you should have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. Kick him out. That seems harsh to us. And we're going to come back and talk about what he really means there. But Paul's saying you, you cannot tolerate this kind of behavior in the community of the church. So what do we learn? Well, the first thing we learn from this is that the church is a community that has standards. Every group is defined by the boundaries it creates. If a group has no boundaries, if it lets anybody in, if it has no standards, then it's really not a group. It's really not a community. All it is is a crowd. And the church is not to be a crowd. Although, as a church, we often function in our culture as a crowd, right? People come not because they're connected relationally, not because they're measuring up to the standards of bought into the values. They come because they want to hear a sermon and they want to hear the music or they want their kids to be in a program. So they function like the church is a crowd, not a community, and they make it into a commodity and they just partake of it and then they leave. Simply a crowd. So as a result, they have a uh, arm's length relationship with the church. And there's no relationship. No personal interaction other than hi, goodbye. Now, that's very, very foreign to Paul's understanding of the nature of the church. To Paul, the church is a community and the community implies relationship. And those relationships... With them come expectations. All the people in the church have have identified themselves as followers of Jesus. And that common relationship connects them together. And with that common relationship comes common expectations in terms of lifestyle. Since we're followers of Jesus, we're to live like Jesus wants us to live. Like he lived. And that becomes the standard or the expectation we're to live up to. That's a community with standards. I was reading about John Wesley this week. John Wesley is, uh, was a great evangelist, and he started the Wesleyan movement in the Methodist church. And he'd win all these people to Christ, and he won a lot of people for, from the lower rungs of society, people who didn't have a lot of economic power or came from really harsh backgrounds. And they would become believers. And then he was finding that they would go back to their old ways of living because there wasn't much in the environment around them that would encourage to live out a different life and become godly. I mean, they were just surrounded in this this tough place to live out your faith. And he was kind of pulling his hair out, trying to figure out how do we hold people accountable to this relationship with Jesus that's supposed to change them and change their lives. Didn't know what to do. While this was going on, the Methodist church decided to build a preaching house, church, 
called it a preaching house. And uh, to get out of, they'd taken on debt to build a preaching house. And to get out of debt, they asked their people all to contribute to the preaching house. And the contribution was to be a penny a week. And a number of their leaders decided that they would go around to all these people who had become believers under Wesley, who were now Methodists, and collect the penny. Times have changed, haven't they? Penny a week. The leaders soon discovered that it was much easier if, rather than going to all the people, the people would come to them. And they would bring their penny, but they began to realize that as the people showed up, they would begin talking. And, and this was the beginning of what was called the class meeting in Methodism. We would call them small groups. <laughs> but the people would come together, they'd bring their pennies, and then they begin to have spiritual conversations. And pretty soon these small groups became very pastoral. And they got enmeshed in other people's lives and with each other and the mess of trying to live out this Jesus thing. And all of a sudden, Wesley realized people's lives were changing because now it wasn't this arm's length relationship to the preaching house. They were involved in these small groups and they were experiencing community and relationship. And suddenly they realized, oh, following Jesus means we have to live differently. And now they had people holding them accountable and encouraging them and praying for them. And it became transformative. You see, there are standards for the community. Church is a community with standards. Second thing we learn is that um, the culture will pressure us to ignore and be silent and avoid confronting people entangled in sin. And that was true in Paul's day. In Paul's day, what you did not want to do is you did not want to shame someone. So even though the pagans and the church thought, the religious community thought, man, this is not okay, they didn't say anything because that, that would shame the person. Well, in our culture, the issue isn't so much shame. The issue is tolerance. We, we have drunken heavily from the well in our culture that says we have to tolerate everything. After all, we live in a pluralistic society. We shouldn't judge. We shouldn't criticize. In fact, we don't have the right. And what has creeped into our thinking, especially in the church in America, is our individualism and our privatization. What I mean by that is we see our relationship with Jesus as simply a private individual thing. It's just me and Jesus. And because we see it that way, we don't think anybody has the right or authority to speak into that relationship. And thus we don't think anybody has the right to tell us how to live. Right? That's intrusive. Where are you getting off that you think you can tell me how I should live my life? That's wrong. You're just being intolerant, bigoted, small-minded, judgmental. No. The church is simply supposed to be this place of grace and forgiveness and well-being and love. Not speak into my life in terms of holding me accountable. Stephen Anderson is a professor in Canada, in Ontario, and he was, he was teaching a class on ethics, and he wanted to engage his students in this moral discussion and, and kind of create some in, uh, moral outrage in them. 
So as he began the class, he showed them a picture of a young girl named Bibi Asha. Bibi Asha was on the cover of Time. Bibi Asha, when she was 14, was forced into a marriage with a Taliban soldier, and that soldier abused her. In fact, kept her with his animals, and she tried to run away. When she tried to run away, she was caught by her family. And because she tried to run away, they cut off her nose and her ears. Now, he showed that picture in class, and some of the kids in the class couldn't even look at the picture. And he got quite an emotional reaction. And then he asked them, so what do you think? And it was like they couldn't engage on a moral level or with a moral conscience. In fact, they, they said to him, well, that looks horrendous to us, but, but we can't judge their culture. I mean, we didn't grow up in their world. Maybe in their world, that's okay. And Anderson is just becoming apoplectic about this. <laughs> he said, no, that's, but they have imbibed so much this notion of relativism that you can't speak truth or, or, or ethics into any situation. You have to be tolerant. You have no right to criticize, no right to judge. And his students had drinking so heavily from that well, they couldn't say, wait, that's wrong. That's wrong. Folks, some things in life are wrong. And some things are right. And we shouldn't imbibe the value of tolerance so that we become oblivious to holiness and sin. The church cannot be that kind of community, even though the pressure is on us to ignore and avoid and be silent. You see, Paul in this passage is not very politically correct. In fact, some people read this passage and say, and think, man, this is harsh and this is repugnant. And if this is what the church is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. But folks, the church is a community with standards that is calling us to holiness. And unless we hold people accountable to the standard, it means absolutely nothing. So the third thing we learn is that we are to hold our own accountable. You might not have realized this, but uh, you're not just a crowd. Your community, And when you become part of the community, one of the things you're doing is giving permission to the community and people in the community to speak into your life. We are to be a community that, that enters into the mess of the struggle in each other's lives. And that means at times confronting sin. Here's the reality. Every one of us in this room struggles or should struggle. And if we don't struggle, it's because we are ignoring some of the reality of sin in our own lives. Because all of us are broken. And the Christian life is this journey of struggle to live out the holiness that God has called us to because of our relationship with Jesus. And that means all of us at times need our chains yanked. We do. We need people to get in our face. We need people to tell us, you know, that's not okay. We need people who will call us up short. 
watching a movie out there called Drum, Drumline. And it's the story of a kid named Devon Miller. He grows up in Harlem. And he's this great drummer, this great percussionist. And because he's so good, he gets a full ride scholarship to A&T University to become part of their marching band. All right. The problem is he's from Harlem. He doesn't understand this culture. He has, he has he's having trouble measuring up to the standards of the community. <laughs> well, one day, Dr. Lee, he's the leader of the band, the director. He, he calls a special early morning meeting and everybody shows up. In their white t-shirts, except Devon, he shows up in a black t-shirt. They're standing at attention. These are all the new recruits and the section leaders and the people already part of the band are on the sideline watching. And there's some stragglers that come in late. And when the stragglers come in late, Dr. Lee says, uh, who are your roommates? And each of them point out their roommates. And Devon's roommate is one of the stragglers. And points to Devon. And Dr. Lee goes up to Devon and he asks Devon, he says, why is your roommate late? And Devon says, well, I guess he slept in. And Lee says, well, why didn't you wake him up? And Devon says, look, I'm not his mother. And Lee turns to the, the section leaders and says, what's our rule? And they all say in unison, one band, one sound. And he repeats it. One band, one sound. Know what that means? That means if anyone's late, we're all late. If anyone uh, makes a bad sound, we all make a bad sound. We sound bad. We're, we're one band, one sound. We're, we're together in this. One band, one sound. And then he says, so, for all you whose roommates, you're not their mom, ten laps. And Devon runs his ten laps. One band, one sound. When we became believers in Jesus, we became part of the band. And now the standard is set. What's Paul say later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? We are baptized into one body. Whether we like it or not, we are connected to each other. It is a web of relationships. And what happens to one of us, in some sense, happens to all of us. Sin is not just an individual thing. It has a ripple effect. And when you engage in in, in sin, not only does it impact you, but impacts all those around you, especially those closest to you. If you have a sin you're you're wrestling with and you're a dad, guess what? Your kids are going to be impacted by that. No matter how much you hide it, no matter how much you pretend it's not there, they will see it and pick it up. It, 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 it leaks. Sin leaks. Don't think that your sin is just between you and God. It is between you and God, but it's also rippling into the community of faith.
say, okay, Nick, I, I get this. We're to hold each other accountable. And, you know, kind of, I'm fine with that. I, I think it's great for us to enter into the mess of each other's life. That's, that's no problem. But, but look, you're talking about something really radical here. I mean, Paul is telling him to kick this guy out. <laughs> that seems a little harsh. That seems a little extreme. Well, I think it's important for us to understand the kind of sin that Paul is saying the community needs to react to. First of all, this is sin that is very flagrant, okay, and serious. I mean, this isn't a little deal where the guy messes up. This is a big deal. This is serious stuff. And it's interesting, if you go in this passage, Paul has two vice lists near the end of the passage where he kind of lists the kind of sins that the church as a community need to respond to. And the first on that list is sexual immorality. So that's where this sin fits. And sexual immorality is just sexual behavior outside the covenant of marriage. And Paul is saying, you know, that's that's a big deal. Because you're violating the very core of what is at the fabric of family in a society. Sexual immorality is serious stuff. It's flagrant. So that's one of them. But then he says, he lists the greedy. (laughs) That means those people are materialistic. That's those people who always are looking for more and more and more and more and more because they never can get enough. And when they get more and more and more, then they just consume it on themselves. Because they're trying to fill up the hole inside of them with all this stuff. And he says, that, that, that's serious stuff. Greediness. And then he says idolatry. And that's interesting because you wouldn't think that an idolater would be in a church. But we can be in the church and followers of Jesus and still have our little idols on the side. The, these people were following Jesus, but they weren't ready to give up. They're idols. They were, were hedging their bet. Kind of. And Paul says, no, that, that's serious. You cannot be divided in your loyalties. You have to be loyal to Jesus and to him alone. He's not an add-on to your life. He has to be the central figure of your life. And then he says slander. Another way to translate that word is gossip. <laughs> Paul says, gossip, when you're talking about other people in a derogatory way and tearing them down and maybe even distorting the truth just a little bit to make yourself look better than them look worse. Oh, that's serious stuff. That's not okay. Isn't this list becoming uncomfortable? It was fine when he was talking about incest because never been a big struggle. Oh, but you talk about materialism and gossip and my little idols. And then he says drunkenness. And he's really getting to the issue of addicted behavior. And I think he's talking about people who have given up the struggle against their addiction and just said, okay. And Paul's saying that's that's not okay. Not okay. And then he, he, he lists swindlers. And all of us say, okay, at least I haven't swindled anybody. But we give our definition to that word, not its real definition, because that real definition isn't talking about doing something illegal in business. It's talking about doing something abusive in business, whether it's legal or not. 
And he's saying if you're a businessman and you're ripping people off, even if it's a legal ripoff, that's not okay. Because as a believer and follower of Jesus, we march to a different drummer. Remember, we're part of the band. We have one sound, and that sound is a higher calling. Well, anyway, Paul says, look, the, the sins we need to react to have to be flagrant, serious stuff. But second, this particular sin was public. And it's as if Paul is saying, look, uh, uh, um, the circle of confession is equal to the, the circle of offense. And in this particular arena, the offense is, is big because everybody knows. And they're watching. And the pagans are watching. And the church is watching. And you're proud about it. And when it's that public, there has to be a public response. Because the testimony of the church now is at stake in the community. It's not just a private affair, it's a public affair. So it's, it's serious, it's public, and last of all, and maybe this is the most important, it's unrepentant. In other words, this guy doesn't want to change. There, there's something about this relationship with his stepmother. Maybe he loves her. Maybe he just is getting all these needs met. Maybe he likes the sex. I don't know what it is, but he doesn't want to change. He's rather, he's more willing to compromise his reputation than he is to compromise that relationship. He wants to hold on to it. I think that's the core issue. The core issue is not that we struggle in our Christian lives. We all struggle in our Christian lives. The core issue is when our struggle is confronted, how do we respond? Do we repent? You see, because when we repent, then that changes the whole dynamic. Matthew 18, Paul gives this clear instruction on how to confront somebody in a sin. What he says, if somebody sins against you, you go to them privately. And if they don't listen to you, if they won't repent, then you go and you get a, a leader. And the two of you go and confront them. And if they won't listen to you then, what do you do? Then you take it to the church. See, everything is dependent on your response to the confrontation. This man would not repent. Really interesting to me. I've always wondered in the Old Testament, you encounter two kings. A king named Saul who was the first king of Israel and a king named David. And you've heard of David. David is a man after God's own heart. He's, he's held up as the, the, the poster child for what it means to be a person who is hard after God. Well, what is really interesting to me, if you take David and you take Saul and you kind of list out their sins, guess whose list is much longer? David's. And I you scratch my head. I go, I don't get it. Saul wasn't any worse than David when it became to behavior. Why, why is Saul, uh, David a man after own God's, God's own heart? And why is Saul totally rejected by God? Why? And I think it all has to do with how they respond when they're confronted with their sin. When Saul is confronted by the prophet about one of his sins, he makes excuses. He begins to explain to Samuel why he wasn't guilty and why he had to do this and why, you know, you shouldn't get on me. It's really their fault. And he has all these rationalizations. He sounds like us. 
But when David, when Nathan goes to David and says, you're the man, you're, he had just slept with Bathsheba and had Bathsheba's husband killed. I mean, David was guilty of bad stuff. But, but Nathan confronts him and says, David, you're the man, you're guilty. And David does what? Does he say, Nathan, you're out of here, you're done? No, he, he falls on his knees. And then on his face, and he confesses. And he says, Nathan, you're right. I've sinned. You see, the difference between Saul and David really is their heart. Their heart. We haven't very often publicly disciplined people at Waterstone, but it has happened. And when it has happened, it's been because someone was unrepentant and weren't willing to change and didn't want to turn around. So, Paul says, hold them accountable. But then, what does that mean? How do we respond to the person entangled in the sin who is unrepentant? He says... We're to kick them out. We're to respond by withholding our fellowship and our association. Let's look at verses 3 and 4, and I think uh, we'll understand this a little better. He says, For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. What Paul is saying is, look, I'm not there, but you can act with my authority as an apostle. I act with the authority of Jesus, and I've already rendered judgment on this man in the community. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, I want you to throw him out. Look at verse 5. But in this... Interesting way. He said, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What the heck is he talking about? <laughs> well, the two, two options here. Some people say what they're saying is kick him out of the church so Satan, who's the prince in the power of the air, can destroy his flesh or kill him. Because at least if he's killed physically and he loses his physical life, he can be saved spiritually because he is a believer. And if you kill him, at least that will keep him from going to total apostasy. Okay? I used to think that's what this passage meant. I don't think that anymore. I think this second alternative is better. I think what he's really saying, hand this man over to Satan and other, put him out of the church so he's now in Satan's realm for the destruction of his flesh. And the word flesh here, I don't think means his physical body as much as his sinful nature, that inclination on in all of us that we have to, to rebel against God. And, and I think what Paul is saying, kick him out of the church, so treat him like an unbeliever and let him experience what it's like to be an unbeliever so that that sin nature in him is destroyed so that he realizes in a sense what he's doing and he loses that desire to continue in his sinful ways. In other words, rather than it being punishment, kick him out so he dies, it's remedial, kick him out so he learns his lesson and changes his behavior. And then in verse 11, he makes it even more clear. I don't know if we have that, but he says, I don't want you... 
I do. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or slander or drunkard or swindler. There's that vice list. He says, don't even eat with such people. Expel the wicked person from among you. What's he? Is Paul advocating the notion of shunning? In some communities, they shun someone who is unrepentant in their sin, and then the whole community has nothing to do with them. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think we have to remember this is instruction to the church. So what he's saying is, as a community, expel them from those things you do as a believing community. In fact, don't even eat with such people. And I think that's a reference to the Lord's Supper. He's saying, look, if this person is going to be living like an unbeliever, treat them like an unbeliever. And since you wouldn't allow an unbeliever to participate in the Lord's Supper or participate as a believer in certain things you do only for believers, don't let them. Because they're living like an unbeliever. I don't think he's saying don't have any association with him because actually what Paul wants to happen is this man to repent and come back to the fellowship. We'll talk about in that, that in a minute. And that can't happen if people don't associate outside the context. But as a believing community, don't associate with him. Now, I think it meant he could still come to worship because worship in that day was done both for believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers would come to see what this whole thing about worshiping Jesus was, was about. So, disassociate. You think about that and you say, well, Nick, that seems pretty harsh. And that seems pretty judgmental. But I think we need to understand the heart or the motivation behind Paul's instructions. I think there are three things that uh, Paul... three reasons why Paul is doing this. The first, Paul is trying to get the guy to repent. He's trying to get the guy to change. He's trying to get... Abraham Herschel has said that sin is a form of temporary insanity. And it is. And Paul is saying, let's treat this guy as if he's an unbeliever so that he can come to his senses, so that if he can come to his senses, he can change his behavior and his lifestyle and come back. So Paul isn't trying to be judgmental. He's trying to be loving because he knows the best thing for this man is to change. Because if he doesn't change, the sin he's participating in will destroy him. We forget that sin is not simply an affront to God. It's destructive to our lives. And if you get entangled in sin and don't turn around, you're headed to a path that will destroy you and the people around you. Don't believe the lie that there are victimless crimes. They're not. They're not. So he's trying to get him to repent. What's interesting, in, in first, Second Corinthians, we find out that the man does repent. He changes, and now he wants to come back to the fellowship. But, but the Corinthians are following what Paul said. No, 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 we're, we're not associating with him. So Paul writes him back. He says, wait, wait, wait. He's repentant. Take him back in. Come on. You, you missed the whole point. <laughs> so repent. The second thing has to do with protection. 
Let's go back to, to verse 5. Paul is talking about this notion of leaven. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the whole yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What's he, what's he talking about? Well, at Passover, the Jews would clean their house of all the yeast that they had been using all year long and begin with a new patch of yeast. And what they would do is they would make dough and then they'd put a little piece of the yeast in the dough. And the yeast was this living organism that would eat the sugars in the dough. And they'd eat the sugars and turn the sugars into alcohol and carbon dioxide. The alcohol would evaporate, but the carbon dioxide would expand. And that's what causes the bread to rise. So they put yeast in it would infiltrate the whole loaf of the bread and change it fundamentally. Then they would take a little piece of the dough and set it aside. So that the next time they made dough, they'd have some yeast. So they'd just take that little portion of dough they set aside and reintroduce it into the new loaf and it would infiltrate the whole thing. And what Paul is alluding to here is, look, if you don't deal with sin in your midst, it will spread like gangrene. See, again, it goes against our cultural notion that, hey, what I do is my business doesn't impact anybody else. And Paul says, that's not true. In a church, you're this community that's entangled in relationships. And if one of you, one band, one sound. If you sound bad, the whole band sounds bad. If you look bad, the whole band looks bad. And sin just, he's saying, just works its way into the fiber of the church. And serious sin that is not confronted in the community does that. So now it not only hurts you, but it hurts the whole church. So, so protect the church. Don't let them continue in the sin. And I think Paul is also alluding to this notion that, look, if you don't confront serious sin in your midst, then... God may judge your community. Because God is serious. We are not playing a game. We are to be a community that lives up to the standards of holiness and struggles to do so. It's not that we're perfect. But there's an issue, a trajectory. Which way are our lives heading? And Paul says, I I don't care where you're at, but I am concerned that you're headed in the right way. Because when you get headed in the wrong way, that's when it's dangerous. It's interesting. I was reading an article about uh, a newspaper guy who had embedded himself with uh, special forces in Afghanistan. And he uh, was watching how they lived and operated. And one of the things he discovered is they were always in each other's face. I mean, about everything. I mean, how you cleaned your rifle, how you folded your laundry, whether you got laundry washed, whether you had dinner, whether you had breakfast. They were always in everybody's face. And you just go, God, you guys are relentless. What is going on here? And they said, you don't understand. You make one small mistake. You lose focus any place. If your gun doesn't fire because you didn't clean it, I'm dead. So it's not okay for you to do your own thing. Right? One band, one sound. This is serious business. Then the last motive for Paul is one of witness. 
I think Paul knows that one of the charges that can be launched against the church is hypocrisy. And we're hypocrites any time we say we're part of this community, then don't live like Jesus would live. And Paul says that's not okay. Because we're living witnesses to the world at hand about what it means to follow Jesus. Like I said, this isn't your touchy, feel-good message. But I think it's something we need to hear. God has put on his church a call to holiness. Why? Because Jesus died for our sin. We're forgiven. We don't earn our forgiveness. It's given to us by his grace. But because we are forgiven, we're to live a different identity. We're to live like holy people, which is what we are. It's interesting. We're going to celebrate communion as we end the service today. And usually when we celebrate communion, we go to 1 Corinthians 11. And we read up through verse 22 and then we stop. I want us to read the rest of the passage this morning because I think it helps us understand. I'm sorry, through 26 and stop. This passage, 27 through 34, helps us understand that what communion is, is a call to examine our identity. And it's a scary passage. Look, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Say, if you have unconfessed and unrepentant sin in your life or broken relationships and you take communion, that's a dangerous thing to do. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, make sure your relationships are right. Make sure you're struggling, not unrepentant. Because he says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Holy cow. I hadn't read that before. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for died. This is not a game from God's perspective. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. God has put on us a call to holiness. So, this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to put some confessions up for you to think through and wrestle with. The servers will come after you've wrestled with God. Maybe you need to go talk to somebody to make things right. Maybe you need to really confess what's going on in your life. Maybe you need somebody to pray for you. There'll be a couple elders up here to pray with you this morning. Prepare your hearts well and then participate in the Lord's Supper because it's a call to remember your identity as a follower of Jesus. Let's prepare our hearts. Probably some of you out there are feeling, boy, it's been kind of harsh and hard. And I admit it's, it's a tough message. And you're thinking to yourself, if I ever struggle with anything, well, one thing I'm not doing is telling those guys. Um, last thing you want to do is hide. Honestly, I think we've disciplined people four or five times. Most of those that we ever have have repented and come back. And we've always done it when we have out of love. And people come to us all the time with serious sin. And typically what we do with them is wrap our arms around them and help them understand God's grace and his forgiveness and his love and then walk with them 
along the journey back and through the struggle. Because we want to love on you. It's one of those rare occasions. And usually those people we we discipline don't come to us because it's public and we have to respond. So we want to be a community that primarily is filled with grace and truth and love. But a community that pursues holiness in a serious way. And that's our heart's desire. I'm going to close us with a benediction on the days we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We take an offering as we leave. That goes to the community, our care fund. And you get bags to collect food because we have a food pantry and that gets handed out during the week. Let's close. May we, the people of Waterstone, Lord, live out the calling of holiness. Not because our good behavior makes us right with you, Lord, but because we're recipients of the grace of Jesus Christ who died for our sin and has forgiven us. But that reality changes our identity. Help us live that identity of saints in our world for your glory and your kingdom. And all God's people said, Amen. Probably some of you out there are feeling, boy, it's been kind of harsh and hard. And I admit, it's, it's a tough message. And you're thinking to yourself, if I ever struggle with anything, well, one thing I'm not doing is telling those guys. Um, last thing you want to do is hide. Honestly, I think we've disciplined people four or five times. Most of those that we ever have have repented and come back. And we've always done it when we have out of love. And people come to us all the time with serious sin. And typically what we do with them is wrap our arms around them and help them understand God's grace and his forgiveness and his love and then walk with them along the journey back and through the struggle. Because we want to love on you. It's one of those rare occasions. And usually those people we we discipline don't come to us because it's public and we have to respond. So we want to be a community that primarily is filled with grace and truth and love. But a community that pursues holiness in a serious way. And that's our heart's desire. I'm going to close us with a benediction on the days we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We take an offering as we leave. That goes to the community, our care fund. And you get bags to collect food because we have a food pantry and that gets handed out during the week. Let's close. May we, the people of Waterstone, Lord, live out the calling of holiness. Not because our good behavior makes us right with you, Lord, but because we're recipients of the grace of Jesus Christ who died for our sin and has forgiven us. But that reality changes our identity. Help us live that identity of saints in our world. For your glory and your kingdom and all God's people said, Amen.